Welcome to episode 235 with my guest Peter Hessen. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. You can join the forum. You can uh, read blogs. You can fill out these surveys that we read uh, on the podcast. You can make donations to the show. All kinds of uh, stuff to check out there. Um, I am in, I believe, year 10 of my war against my pant size. And uh, my pant size is winning. <laughs> I made the I made the mistake of going. Well, you know what? I'm just gonna get big pants. <laughs> I'm gonna get pants that are too big, and then I can eat whatever <laughs> I want. Now I've filled those pants. And to be fair, some of this weight is from one of the drugs that I'm on, which is mirtazapine. And so I I talked to my shrink and I was like, can we try something else? Because I just, I can't handle the extra 15. I mean, I was probably 5, 10 pounds overweight before this. And now uh, I probably put on another 15 pounds. And, um, you know, when you bend over to tie your shoes and you're glad that you didn't have anything to eat, so it's not a struggle, that's that's usually a sign that, and, and I, I'm going to the gym three times a week, and I'm playing hockey three times a week. So I'm hoping going off this pill will do something. And I should also mention that I drink uh, sour cream out of a gun. <laughs> One of those caulking guns. I just have it right by my nightstand. And uh, <laughs> if I start to snore, I just take a couple of hits of sour cream. Speaking of food, I wanted to share this memory I have with you guys. Um, it was probably about 1995 or 96. I just um, started doing um, uh, dinner in a movie, the TV show. And, um, and so for the first time, my wife and I weren't broke and we had a little bit of money. And it was, you know, it was a cable show. It certainly wasn't, uh, you know, we weren't getting rich on it, but, um, we had, I think, like 2000 maybe $5,000 now saved. And uh, didn't, we were like, well, you know, should we put it in the bank? Should we try to invest in something? We, you know, we'd never tried investing in anything. So I don't know why we asked the most. <laughs> we asked the friend with the worst track record of handling money, the guy that borrowed money from us and never paid us back. We asked him if he knew a good financial advisor. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know this guy that just got sick of his other job and decided to become a financial advisor. So we're like, oh, that sounds great. So we give this guy our $5,000. And mind you, this is basically all the money we had at, uh, at that po- at that point, uh, all the money we had saved. And, uh, and, he, and he says to us, um, like three days after giving him the money, he goes, I just made a transaction, just wanted to let you know. Bought a stock called Manhattan Bagel. They just posted a 10% loss, and I'm pretty sure uh, they're going to turn this around. And we're like, eh, that sounds good. So three or four days later, 
uh, were driving and we noticed that a Manhattan bagel opened up in uh, in our neighborhood. And we're like, oh, let's go check it out. And we walk in there and just my heart sank. It it looked like, like have you ever been in a low-budget cafeteria? That's what the, the de- decor looked like, like sad fluorescent lightings, uh, lighting. It just like dull white walls it just uh, it was and the food was not great but i'm not a stickler for great food so i was like all right well you know maybe this thing's going to turn around no it just starts doing a nosedive and it is nosediving and nosediving and pretty soon it's worth almost nothing and uh and and so i'm striving down the street one day and another manhattan bagel has opened up i don't understand how it's it's expanding and losing money but um so i go in there and um and i order i think it was a turkey bagel or something and i step away from the counter and i look back at the doorway and in the 30 seconds between i walked through the doorway and ordered my food and now a bird with a wingspan of probably two and a half feet is laying dead in the doorway, wings stretched completely out, dead as a doornail laying in the doorway. And I'm like, what? I turn around to the girl at the counter and I go, there's a dead bird in your doorway. And I swear to you, she looks me right in the eye and she goes, did you want cheese on your bagel? And I said, yes, and I ate my food. And I, if I remember correctly, I stepped over the bird on my way out. I don't understand how the bird, maybe it hit the window, but I would have heard it hit the window. These are, uh, these are some surveys. This is uh, from The Struggle in a Sentence. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself too functional for my own good. About her anxiety, she writes, it's like the feeling you would get right when you realize you're about to get hit by a car, except that it happens every day, multiple times a day, or something as trivial as hearing your phone ring. Uh, About her excoriation disorder, uh, which is obsessive skin picking, she writes, needing to wear gloves or cover all of my fingers and band-aids when doing schoolwork so that I don't find myself constantly distracted by picking off the skin around my nails until I'm bleeding. About uh, dissociating, dissociating. Uh, She writes, uh, feeling foreign to my body and sitting in bed, staring at the wall in front of me as though through a fog until I, quote, wake up, not knowing if I've been there for three minutes or three hours. Snapshot from her life. Ever since an innocent comment, comment that my first grade teacher made to my class about being sure to read what is on the page, I've been obsessive about reading things, quote, perfectly. I remember reading one of the Harry Potter books in third grade and taking over an hour to read one paragraph. I felt so anxious to the point of nausea if I didn't keep if I tried to keep going. I was crying and decided to tell my mom. She looked confused and told me not to do that. <laughs> there there's some there's some uh some very nuanced uh modern Yeah, just don't do that. I felt embarrassed and never told anyone until I started seeing a therapist for anxiety at my university counseling center. Um, 
yeah, parents, if your kid comes to you and they're stressing out about something, instead of telling them to just not do that, ask them what's going on with them. Talk to them. Take your time with them. You know, I'm not a parent, so I don't know. I can't imagine how hard it is, but uh, this is same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Godzilla made me do it about being a sex crime victim. She writes, feeling the rage over countless assaults all bubbling over anytime someone touches you. In that moment, you feel assaulted again and you want to satiate this desperate thirst for revenge that you know you can never have even one sip of relief. So instead, you tamp it down because you're a nice, socially appropriate, seemingly normal person. And then think about what a psycho you feel like for even having those feelings. You're not a psycho for having those feelings. That's a human reaction to... uh, that's a normal reaction to an abnormal thing. Um, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Searching and about her ADD. She writes, reading a paragraph while simultaneously being shouted at about every word or point that you're missing. About her anorexia, numbers, big or small, seared in your brain, showing up on your plate, reflecting in every mirror, behind every dressing room door numbers about being a sex crime victim you're safe you're good you care you love me so why can't i look at you when you kiss me snapshot from her life i was systematically abused by peers in middle school i am now dating an amazing guy who is patiently walking through this with me i know it hurts him though one minute i want to have sex with him and the next i would rather not be in the same room as him and i can never predict which i'll feel This is, um, is this from, uh, and this is a different one. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Ari. And uh, this is a snapshot of living with binge eating disorder. And she writes, I finally convinced myself to leave the house to go buy more binge food. At the supermarket, all of my credit cards and bank cards are declined. No money left. So I take off necessities, toilet paper, trash bags, and healthier food so I can buy some of the binge food. I start crying while the cashier bags my items. I go into the bathroom at the store and eat half of what I bought standing in a stall, and the rest is gone less than an hour after being home. I then say I will restrict food for two days to compensate. But a few hours later, I find myself preparing a huge dinner. Oh my God, that sounds, that sounds so painful. My heart goes out to you. My heart absolutely goes out to you. Um, this is uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Artichoke Hold. Oh, good name. About her depression, she writes, It's exhausting taking seven pills to make me not want to kill myself. I think about that when I take my meds every day. I'm like... I hate that. I hate that I have to take pills. Um, And if you're out there and you're going to email me and say, you don't have to take pills. If you just breathe, fuck off. Um, And you know what? Maybe I'll be one of those people one of these days that can get off them. I try every couple of years. I like how I'm creating you arguing with me. Um, about her anger issues, she writes, uh, I'm running out of posters to hide my fist imprints in the wall. Snapshot from her life. My favorite part of the day is coming home and crying with a cigarette over what I've fucked up today. And this one is by a guy who calls himself Ash, Ash Ketchum. And uh, 
he writes about uh, compulsive behaviors. It took 14 years to get my mother to throw out the electric walk she bought and never used once. My grandmother, who has two ulcers, dragged our 10-foot-tall bookcase out of the garbage and down into the basement where she has put a bunch of outdated and incorrect encyclopedia and other garbage. They're all fucking crazy and drive me up the wall. Now excuse me while I organize my 200-gigabyte of porn by main actor, fetish, and studio. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so. That is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. And I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with Peter Hessen who is a uh, friend of mine I've known probably for about 10 years and um, Peter's one of those guys that isn't afraid to pick up the phone and leave a message at two in the morning saying I'm sitting here in bed and I can't sleep. My mind is racing and uh, I am feel like I'm clinging to uh, something. I probably am afraid, Paul, but I'm more afraid if I don't. Well, you know, you're somebody who uh, I always appreciate when uh, you share in our support groups. Your honesty is truly the standard by which people's shares are uh, are measured, and you've uh, you've experienced a lot in in your life. You're how old? Sixty one. You're sixty one years old. You grew up with a father um, who my father said to me one time a friend of his called me and said I think your dad's trying to kill himself so I drove over to where my dad lived I shouted out from down on the street and threw the rocks up against the window and he said you know Peter I cheated on your mother from day one we only had you because she wanted kids I didn't and uh, and I I guess I grew up with that, you know, I was, uh, wasn't loved by the person that I idolized, you know, a kid thinks dad does no wrong. So when dad yells at the neighbor and does all that stuff, um, we got to the point where we just, when his car pulled up in the driveway, everybody went to bed. Mm. Was he a drinker? I'm just going to heavy. Yeah. He was a heavy drinker. Um, he had like 20 jobs in, in 20 years, I was told, mm -hmm. and that he was a compulsive drinker and a gambler and a sexer and, uh, quit going to church. We were raised Catholic 
and my mom would still go to church, and I went to Catholic school. But between my father deciding that he didn't believe in anything greater than himself and uh, the nuns that were brutal on kids like me mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, nobody else for my mom to talk to, really. You know, the women kept it to them. They suffered in silence. And uh, so I got kicked out of Catholic school in seventh grade. And so here's where I got all that higher power stuff from was I had a pretty low opinion of his opinion of me. And uh, your father's. Well, you know, he was gone by this time. Mm -hmm. You know, we he beat the crap out of my mom, all that kind of stuff. But I think what I'm saying from that time in my life is that when when say sex would come along as something that was this new frontier, a new relief, almost like uh, a drink for me or Mm -hmm. a substance of some kind that seemed to offer relief, I was in need of relief because, um, yeah, I was thinking about that a lot this week is is a lot of things and choices that we make. um, There doesn't seem to be a lot of alternatives at the Mm -hmm. time, you know, to, to drink heavily to help me cope with something. I didn't want to be like my dad. And so drugs, which was my generation. So I thought perhaps I wouldn't be like him. Little did I know. How'd that turn out? (laughs) Well, your, your laugh says, I don't really have to tell you is, is. But, but you, you were not a, uh, you were not physically abusive, uh, were you? No, my, you know, there was, there was a time where when my, when I was getting big enough and my dad would come home and hit my mom, that I would come out of the room and say, stop. And, and specifically one memory was, uh, that I would try to fight him off and that he was choking me and she was pulling him off saying, you're going to kill him. And, uh, you know, so there I am. That just sounds like good family fun to me. Yeah. And, and prepared me for, uh, you know, first girlfriends and, and a series of relationships that never lasted through. Fair, fair to say that. Uh, go ahead, finish your, uh, your sentence. Never well, lasted through through the year. Uh, fair to say that you were attracted to uh, chaotic relationships, drama. Yeah, I was. I was uh, addicted, I suppose. To uh, we walked up the stairs tonight, and I said, "I don't know what's up there. Is it dark? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen?" And and to feel. To feel scared was to feel alive. And what would you you mean scared tonight or scared in the past? Well, it it reminded me of it's like walking walking down the street. Uh, I lived in this neighborhood when I was uh, more of a party animal, mm-hmm. uh, when I was much more dis- self destructive, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, I, when I, finally this wonderful upbringing I had culminated in, in carrying a gun and walking a Doberman through the streets of Venice, buying uh, crack from the Shoreline Crips. And, um, I, you know, there's, there's a dramatic pause there. It's just I, I picture what it was like, you know, sad, real sad, desperately sad. 
and in inability to know much else. Share that that moment that you shared. Uh, I think I think it was a couple of weeks ago about the kid that you had bought. The- oh, well, when I lived in Venice, I lived in a house behind a house, and I. Uh, He's talking about Venice, California. Yeah. And uh, the gangs were pretty bad. They got a kick out of me. Um, I I was arrested once for stealing cartons of cigarettes from a grocery store. And when the cops came in, they asked me where the perp was because I was nicely dressed and I didn't look the type, which got me bail a lot. So anyway, so the kid, they've got school kids selling dope. And so the kid sells me the dope. He was on a bicycle. He was probably 10 to 12 years old. And, and, and I would buy the dope from him. And there's a moment where you just think, you know, clearly there's something wrong here. I need to get home and smoke it as quick as possible so I can quit thinking about how demented I am. And, um, you know, I, I lost cars. I lost, I had a career in music. You know, we played some good clubs. We were called The Accidents. What was your instrument? I played the keyboard and wrote and sang some. I, I sang really badly, that. sang really badly, uh, but uh, passionately. <laughs> so <laughs> that makes people, up people <laughs> used to compliment me like, you know, there's something different about you. And, but, you know, there was a time, Paul, there was a time before it got terribly, terribly bad. You know, I used to smoke a joint, play the guitar. I had the harmonica brace around my neck, and I would write these songs, and I had no fear, and my life was about not having fear. I think I had fear of doing things like this, talking to people, you know, going out to dinner and different things, but I would see a girl in a park, and I would park my van and go up and say, would you like to hear a song? And so so I was possessed of tremendous courage, and and paralyzing fear at the same time. Wow, what a that's so heavy. So that's when so I heavy. when I got when I finish t- finish the beat. Oh, the kid, the yeah, kid. Yeah, thank you. See, two strokes. Mm-hmm. I never know where the story ends up. Yeah. Um, anyway, I bought the 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 dope from the kid, and I went home. And of course, you know, I spent a lot of time. Uh, you know, crawling around the floor and, and hiding and, and trying to look at something sexy on, on the tube. And, uh, I went out the next morning and the kid was on his way to school. And of course, I, I had any boundaries or morals that I had possessed early in the evening were barely uh, you were visible you, at the time. I was tweaking. Yeah, and you were still awake. He had uh, yeah. clearly gone to yeah. sleep. And, yeah. yeah, with a pocket full of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he just, you know, uh, I think what you enjoyed was, was uh, go home, crackhead! <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I and it would be Sunday. And the beautiful, righteous people in Venice, many of whom were in poverty, but they were putting on their nicest clothes and the whitest dresses and doing the hair up nice and they would be by church and I would see these people that were of family and love and smiling and laughing in spite of what they didn't have 
you know, and uh, and they would look at me, and I would be six, seven times around the same block, and I and in, I just couldn't go home. I just couldn't go home and deal with myself. I I ceremoniously threw the crack pipe in the kitty litter and took the kitty litter and dumped it into the trash can and put the can out on the corner. And then I went out to the can as I heard the truck coming because okay. I couldn't sleep and I got the pipe out. And I wasn't sure what kind of rock was in it, but something was stuck to it. And so I can tell you that... Uh, Maybe the reason why I, I lose my way in a story has very much to do with the chemical content of smoking Johnny Cat. <laughs> and yet a series of things had to go wrong to get me to a place where uh, I went and I said I needed help. And uh, some people helped me. And what were, what were the things that had to go wrong for you to get to that place? You can't borrow any money more from your family. I, the dog had crapped on my carpet so many times that I had cut the carpet in half on my floor and taken it outside and tried to wash it with a hose, except that I didn't let it dry enough and when I brought it back inside it was smelly and mildewy and and the imaginary voices I heard got meaner and meaner and I was clearly pathetic and um, could not hide from myself could not hide from when I couldn't find a Madonna video to try to escape to or uh, Don Cornelius, you know, the soul train, soul train. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would I would start at six o'clock the previous night and stay awake till soul train was on because of that one girl that danced because somehow my life was going to make sense. I mean, to have lived that and then gone back to it so many times kind of defines a disease. So anyway, what were we talking about? So what what led you to finally go get help? Well, just, you know, you just can't see Sally Struthers with the little African kids that many times when you're looking for Madonna that you don't think this is, you know, and this is killing my mom. And, and deep down inside of me, Paul, I mean, I was a good guy. I was a good guy because that stuff still hurt me. It still crushed me, that sadness. And, and, a, and a guy dropped off a box of kittens in my backyard, and I tried to save them all because I knew what was going to happen to them if I let the shelter take them. And they all died because I was in my disease. You know, and, and I had dogs, and I, and I was disgusted by the amount of fleas as I tried to give them a bath. I just disgusted myself until, you know, I made a phone call, whether I was scamming or not. Where either I thought I could clean up or whatever, you know, I made a phone call and, and somebody on the end of the phone was nice. Like that Enya CD, it was, there was something angelic and peaceful and it was a mother holding a baby, which is maybe what my soul needed. So I, I, I went into this hospital and a woman that had been a prostitute watched us at night. And she was trying to rekindle a relationship with her daughter. 
And I thought, what a powerful, powerful, you know, what a tragedy and how much I respected her. And so were these angels that were put in my life to say, Peter, you know, you think you've had it rough with this and that and the other thing. But listen to this. Listen to this guy's story. This guy was, you know, he'd murdered somebody in a drug something. And he did all this time and he got out and he threw his life into recovery. And they just seemed like... You know, if people who had done this could respect themselves, you know, it's not impossible for me. But I was jealous and I was angry. There there was a famous rock star in the hospital and he was getting all the attention. And and I remember we were reading. And you know Randy. Mm -hmm. He's he's been a guest on this program. Randy was there six months before me. And Randy was being a service, and we were reading this book, and it said, We drank to escape the guilt of passion. We drank yet again to make more passion possible. And it was, uh, and I wrote it down, and I wrote it on my wall, and I started doing push ups, and I just looked at that every day. And every time, you know, Rockstar got called on when it was my turn, <laughs> is I said, You know, this is my turn, this is my time. And and I was humiliated and embarrassed by counselors. I was jealous of people, horribly jealous, and uh, and and yet that fueled me to to want to do this. And I was I wanted I I guess I felt so embarrassed that so few people had given me any shot that when I got out of there, I I went to a, a clubhouse. Where at the halftime of the clubhouse, I had given up because I'd seen what, you know, people talking to each other. This was a support group. Yeah. And this, mm-hmm. and they were all so nice to each other that I just, I couldn't stand it. And I started to leave, you know. Was it because you felt that, that these people are just fundamentally different than me and I'm never going to be a part of them? I'm sure, I'm sure that was part of it, but it was, it was just to get out of there. I, I'm standing alone. I don't stand right. I don't look right. I don't have socks that match anymore. You know, um, and, 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 and that self-talk that was so bad. And no tool to fight it. So somebody came up to me. And I remember that night calling my mom and saying an angel spoke to me tonight. I was crying. I said, somebody came up to me and said, don't go. They recognize me. You know, and and higher power, I don't know. But pretty miraculous. And then I got hungry. And then I came back. And then I stayed. And I got up every, I started a company washing post office trucks and I washed post office trucks from four to eight forty five in the morning. And then I would do three meetings a day if I could. And then I got on, uh, I, I got involved in different things, which, which most of which didn't involve me looking at anybody in the eye. All it, all it took was me to talk to somebody. And and then mothers of people like me were calling and were crying and saying, thank you. You're so strong in this and that. And I, and I suppose... Because you were reaching out on the phone to help people who were struggling to get sober? 
Yeah, yeah. That I mean, I was available. I made myself available, and I I fell so deeply in love with this thing and these people that had saved me, and and they told me, you know, you can't give it back to me. You have to pass it on, and so I just threw myself into service. And and there were things that said, you know, the more you think about this, or the more you want to act out on that, because I got to tell you, Paul, is that all the times that I felt that I didn't fit in or that that why is she with him and all these things, you know, it takes a long time. It takes a lot. You know, some guy says, I, I, I've changed my life 15 years ago, um, but I, I was ruining it for 30. So I have to watch my expectations. You know, I got very emotional over coming here. Yeah? Yeah, I started to cry. Why? What was coming up? Because, you know, you talked about fears and loves and things like that. And the fear was that I, I'm a fraud about to be found out. It's just the power of this. Oh, my God. I don't have to tell you about you're, that. You're one of the most genuine people that I know, truly. But if, if I wasn't among other like-minded people, courageous people, uh, to open up, you know... If I just looked at how well somebody dressed and that that was the end of the conversation is I would be gone. I would be lost. And so it's it's the people who have confessed or the people who have, you know, Randy talked about certain something in his life that I'd actually been through. And it was my chance to say, you know, I went here when I got ordered to go do that by the court. You know, I had to. I got worse before I got better. I did a lot of really bad things, you know. Any, any things you want to share? Well, I got arrested twice on on sex charges in in the first year of of my better life. Um and and oddly enough, what, what were the? Oops, sorry. I just well, I had some. solicited. I had solicited a uh, policewoman. And and I was involved, you know, it was all around prostitution because prostitution was a predictable, uh, negotiable, and I think I felt wanted, and lack of power was my dilemma. So it, 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 the end of the night was always sad, and I've got to join a convent and moved to France but but the conquest and the game was like walking up these stairs tonight it was like scary but I feel alive the trying to find a prostitute was the was the part that, oh, I, that was I, exciting I solicited to I had solicited the policewoman that night and, and, and been taken to jail mm-hmm. and then got out of jail and thought what to do with my feelings was to get a prostitute and then she stole my money. And I was hiding in the bushes with a golf club, ready to hit somebody. And, and, and anybody? It, uh, whoever she was with, I suppose. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, in fact, in Hollywood one time, a woman, you know, I'm very naive. So a, a woman had said, uh, I'm going to go into the bathroom. And I'll be right out. And I heard her making all kinds of noises, which I figure later was probably shooting heroin. And I had, I had, you know, 
Crack addicts are economical. So when nobody was at the counter at the motel, I stole the key from behind the counter. So I was in a stolen room, <laughs> and the woman came out and said, go in and wash up, and then she stole my pants. <laughs> and so and so it was either, you know, call somebody with a borrowed dime from the guy whose room I stole or chase the girl down the street naked, <laughs> which I did. Did you? And, and, and Paul, that's that's the part of me. That's the part of me that that I have fallen in love with, which is the guy that you like and the guy that has friends is this character um this part of me um so anyway i i ran down the street and, and and i must say i was fully erect and i was falling down the street running down the street and people were watering lawns or walking dogs and i and i was giving brief descriptions of the girl that had stolen my clothes you know you have got to be no, kidding i swear me. to god it's all true and so finally somebody whistles and he points and I catch up with her and I, and I say, I'm a really nice guy, but I'm, I, I have to hurt you if you don't give me my money back. And she and I had this conversation, which included a description of the guy that was going to kill me later. <laughs> but I got my pants back and I got the money back and, and gave birth to a, a gutsy guy. Um, I lived in Studio City. I managed to move into a home that my uncle had built. So was that a, a touchstone for for changing for you? That no, that, that I was moment? still. I you know, uh, that didn't wake you it up. Was, it that was moment? Kind, it was it was it was it was a kind of a discovery of a courage that inside of me there was a person that can do things that his head says you can't. And so, so later in my life, it became a pattern. When my dogs got out and we were in a very rich neighborhood, which they didn't want me in very much. I had, I had a very old car and a, and big dogs. It was a small dog neighborhood, but my big dogs had gotten out. And, and so I'm walking through the neighborhood and you know, they're beautiful, beautiful houses, amazingly beautiful places that can make me feel like I'm very insignificant. And, uh, and my dog's name was Dude. So Dude wasn't coming home, so I had to walk up and down the street screaming, Dude! <laughs> and, and, and your dog doesn't come back unless you yell really loud. And, and one must be unafraid to offend to live in one's skin sometimes. You know, to go home that night with the dude was to risk the uh, offending, you know. I already felt disliked, but now I was going to be hated. <laughs> but I got the dude back. So, Did same, you call him that in honor of the Big Lebowski? Probably. Probably. Yeah. The dude, cool name. In any case, Paul, it's, it's why I say the things I say in meetings and that, that I risk things and, and that, that spontaneity spontaneity is is a big deal um you know my 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 buddy my mentor took me on a movie site and i was a stand-in 
and they were throwing away all the plastic bottles and and something bothered me what really bothered me was was feeling like i couldn't go get a bag and put the bottles in it and so i started doing that every day on the set and probably somebody wanted to fire me because i did that but every night i went home i felt like you know what that girl that ended up being buffy the vampire slayer she uh you know she's making millions and and but I didn't let who she was stop me from doing something that I felt I needed to do to feel like a man, you know, to feel like a human. And I think all of us have that. Uh, for people that, that don't know, a stand-in is, uh, the, it, it's kind of like an extra. You get, um, you are paid to stand where the, um, actor is going to stand while they adjust the lights and stuff like that so that the the uh, actors don't have to um stand there um and i had a crush on every every girl that was the female stand-in so what's the next chapter well paul you know i i i had gone to russia because of a website I had gone to Mexico because Russia didn't work and then what I was came the, what was the website uh, you know um, Russian women seeking American husbands and I flew to Poland and met a woman and and felt proud of myself for going and and I cried out one night I cried out I was in my bed and I kicked all the dogs and cats off the bed because I was unworthy of love and I screamed out at God what haven't I done what haven't I done that I'm so alone you know all night I do the midnight shift on the on the uh, on a helpline for a dozen years and so finally, I, I'm going to a group that's a bunch of guys were hanging out and I'm having some feelings and I go into the Gelson's bakery and there's this cute little blonde girl there and she's working up a sweat. She's working really hard. And, and, uh, and of course, I'm, uh, I don't know, you know, I'm an apprentice something, but I bought her flowers before I really knew her name. Now, I don't know if that's in any if that's in Cosmo is recommended, <laughs> but but she she was looking, she hit it off with me, we um, you know, and uh, we got married, and uh, never had sex again once we were married. Really, is that amazing? You know. She she was a holder hands in the air Christian. Mm -hmm. We would go to the groups with guys with microphones mm -hmm. and and scary suits, and she would buy every cassette that they would tell her would pave her way into heaven. Talking about like televangelists, you exactly, know, without the exactly television. That, and yet I saw her as just such a virtuous woman that this this was uh, this was my Enya come to life. <laughs> you know, what I had managed her to be. And so uh, she and I got married. Uh, she said we can't have sex before we're married. 
And then we had sex every night, and she said, God will forgive us. It was very confusing to me. Um, but I was 48 at the time. She was a year older than me. So we, you, you didn't have sex until you got married. You got married. And no, got, we had lots of sex before we got oh, married. Okay. In spite of her saying, that we'll go to hell if we do. I see. Um, it was confusing. But part of confusion made sense to me, you know, after all these years. Um, so anyway, we got married. It wasn't working really great. Then her daughter came to us and said, I'll make the eggs. We'll put them in my mom, and you can have kids. So we uh, we had kids. Because your wife was infertile? Yeah. We had twins. My wife got very, very sick. She never got better. She got early-onset Alzheimer's and dementia. She's in a home now, and my children are 12 and a half. And, I've uh, seen your boys be raised. I've, I've remember them uh, hanging around our support group when they were one and two years old. And and in the way that I am grateful for your role in their lives is that they get to see me around men of character, uh, a fought for morality, men that can take responsibility, apologize and get back in to the game, into the world. Uh, and that they see that quality people respect their father is enormous. You know, my kids don't have a mother. They have a hundred uncles. And and that quality, that go-for-it-ness, that, that look at Paul's life, you could be here, but you take a risk. You do. Uh, I think men need that. And so my kids are outgoing. They're singers and they're brilliant and they're doing all these things. But I, I take me everywhere I go. So I'm a guy that, you know, um, your email to me talked about loves and fears and things. And, and I would tell you one of the things I love most is is forgiveness and reconciliation and that every time i think i have fucked up just too much that i have come apart at the seams that that there are things that i can do there are those phone calls that i can make there is a laugh that i can share with somebody and that my kids my kids love for me I guess is as strong as my love for my father was, who I used to, when he was packed and leaving, I would stand in the driveway and say, don't go. That, that is heartbreaking. But all what goes wrong to go right. So, so the buzz of calling out dude's name in the middle of the night or recycling while Buffy looks at me skeptically of who is this guy or, you know, is he allowed on the set is, is, you know, um, I have found that person, that character, that, that Paul that you let out, that real person, that authentic person to be the buzz 
to be the joy. And when I go to my kid's school and I'm in there with the principals, and sometimes it's with the cops. You know, they took my son to all of you one night because he got into it with his principal. She threw him on the ground. They called the cops on me. Social services was in my home. And I'm looking her right in the eye and I see you talk to him all you want. I'll leave the room. What do you want to know? Come on in. And and I couldn't have done that without, gee, I don't know, that angel that stopped me at that support group that mm-hmm. night without without somebody sharing something with me. Uh, you know, I won't go into the details, and I don't even know if you remember. Um, but you called me one day, and you were having a tough day. And you said, here's here's what I don't feel good about, and I feel so bad about it, I've done it again. And I don't know what to do. And I, and I think we need somebody with perspective, somebody that's not in it with us, to say, you know, I love you to death, and I think you're the bravest guy in the world. And whatever quality lives inside of you that has the courage to tell me that, this is a guy that's going to be okay. So I got these kids. I was I was afraid, you know, one of the great spiritual teachers told me, he says, Peter, you ask so much of a higher power, whatever you believe it to be. When I got kicked out of Catholic school, I said, but what about Hindus? They don't pray to Jesus on the cross. But what if they're really good people? But but my church was kind of selfish at the time. It was us. Mm-hmm. You know, we were the right, we were the right ones. Yeah. And and so what I got kicked out for was insight, not ignorance. But how long do you destroy yourself thinking that you can't have that relationship? So anyway, um, the, you ask a lot of, of that power, so what are you doing for that power? So we went and visited the boy's mom yesterday in the home to see her. and uh, And I wanted to do something that took some courage or something, a prayer, an action. The prayer needs to be an action. Needs to be to, to walk up to you and say, look, you make a difference in my life. And if you ever doubt it, look me in the eye right now and let me tell you that I don't have a lot of friends because I don't show up for stuff because I'm a lot more scared than I look like. But you're a really cool guy and I can't be that bad is my head says I am, if you're my friend. And I've tried to be honest enough with you so that you could just get on your horse and ride and say, good luck, Pete. But you're still my friend. And you don't hug me because I'm, because, because you, you hug me because you do know me, not because I've lied well enough. <laughs> so uh, back up to going to uh, visit your your wife. Um, what, what is these, are you divorced? Well, we, we did get divorced. Part of her family took her. She was in a really nice place and she was stabilized, but her doctor said she couldn't be alone with the kids. So we would go visit her and she was very close, but parts of her family, um, some of whom just had their ankle bracelets removed recently, mm-hmm. figured that I had a lot of money, and if they took her, 
and then divorced Peter, that there would be a tremendous amount of money involved in taking care of her. And the, and the most tragic part of all was where they put her, and that in defending myself, I lost my home, and and everything that they wanted was lost in the battle. So my sister is my ex-wife's guardian, and um, and where's her family? I don't know. When they saw that there was no money, then they were like, you know, I. That's what it felt like. You know, that's what was happening in court when I would read things that they accuse you of when you're the plaintiff. Um, boy, if you don't have somebody to help you through that, you know. And for a listener who's afraid to say something to somebody is that that was the moment that my life changed was when I took a chance that you might understand. It's the biggest deal in the world. The very thing that I was most embarrassed to say made me somebody's friend. And and that's like when the, to me, the power of the universe really reveals itself. Or I should say, you allow it in. Indeed, to allow it in. You know, when I when it, I went away for 30 days, part of being arrested twice is I went to... Uh, clinic and uh, it had a, a sex addiction aspect to it mm -hmm. um, in uh, Arizona somewhere. Is this the Meadows? No. Okay. No. Tucson Day something. Okay. <laughs> and um, anyway, I um, I completely forgot what I'm saying, Paul. You, you went away for 30 days. Yeah. And we're talking about letting the universe in. Oh, they blindfolded me. They blindfolded me. You know why they do that in a rehab? Because mm -mm. you won't ask for help. Oh, it's a way of to forcing you to accept help. To say, how can I get you to let the universe in? How can, how can I let you know that people do care about you? And, and that words were never, weren't going to be enough. Would they be? So, you know, that, that took me to my, uh, 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 something that a, a mentor of mine said. He said, Peter, when you learned who you were, who'd you learn from? And I said, my dad. And they said, your dad was an untreated alcoholic, wasn't he? And I said, yeah, he was, and, and who had an alcoholic father that beat the crap out of him too, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, he said, so, hey, Peter, when you were drunk or loaded, did you ever say anything you didn't mean? And did you ever not apologize for it? And you just hurt people because of how hurt you were? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, that's what your dad did to you. And he says, and Peter, he says, what your dad told you was a lie. And for 20-something years now, you've been acting on the lie that you believed. It's a pretty big deal. And that, that this horrible opinion of myself, the feeling that no matter how, how strong your hug is or, or any of that stuff, is there's a part of me that's going to beat the crap out of me later. 
and that if I, if I stay there too long, it takes me places. So somebody said, Peter, everywhere you go that you're so ashamed to be in starts with this opinion of that you failed, that you're inadequate. And, and, and the sooner you confront that and prove that that's wrong, the better off you'll be, the more exciting your life will become. And so open up, say those things, make that joke, throw it out there. You know, you go out to dinner with a bunch of guys and you got something funny to say, and it's not good if you wait three more minutes and throw it out there. <laughs> it's just late. You know, people are getting in their cars. Come back. I, you know, let's capture that moment again. So, so life changed and I'm 61 and I'm respected at the school and I, and I try to take care of the kids and, uh, and I have terrible nights of not being able to sleep. And I've called you on some of those nights because it's, it's a process. The texting, even the talking to the machine gets me through a couple minutes. So what are the struggles today, the day-to-day things that you... Now now that the big, you know, the smoke and the crack, the, you know, the sexual acting out stuff. Probably one of the great fears, Paul, is um, the loneliness. Uh, you know, we sleep in a garage because it's the biggest room in our house. We put some flooring in, and so the kids each have their beds, and we sleep in the same 18 by 18 garage. And um, I'm a victim of Western culture and television and what I see around in the Internet, and I just don't know that I have... Uh, I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway wants. <laughs> and, and you know, we learn what we see, we practice what we learn, and we become what we practice. And I've spent so much time with my kids and, and justifying not being part of my support group and not being social and not going out in the evening to that I, I'm very rusty. It's like a person that said, gee, I lived in Spain for three years, but I can hardly remember the language. And, and, and I will, you know Shelley Weiss. I did know Shelley before okay. he passed. Shelley, when I wrote music, Shelley used to come over to my house and we would listen to the music together, which was, you know, there are blissful, beautiful times in your life that you don't recognize at the time. But what an amazing time in my life. And and Shelly and I would laugh and joke, not unlike we do in our support mm -hmm. groups sometimes when we let down our guard and just let it be. And Shelly stopped and he said, turn off the music. And he said, who is who am I talking to? And I said, I don't get what you mean. He says, he says, I don't know who it is that's not dating all those girls or that feels intimidated by all those people, 
or feels less than those guys that go to the gym all the time. He says, I don't know who that guy is, but it's not this guy. It's not this guy right now in this room with me. He says, because this guy can have it all. He says, just good God, give him this guy. You know, but there's the fears. And there's the how bad I want something to work out and how bad I want it to work out even with somebody that's not healthy for me, with whom it's clear. So that's that's my struggle, probably the great fear. And I and I, you know, I'd really like my sons uh, maybe to learn how to treat women from seeing daddy date. And have some fun. The women at school all love me, but they're all moms. So. Well, buddy, I appreciate you sharing all that uh, stuff. Is there, before we do any, if some fears and loves, is there anything else? Any memories or things you like to like to say? Well, I'm very happy that I didn't drink another Red Bull. <laughs> you don't seem amped up. I, I would say, Paul, that that there's very little. It's something I'd like to change in my life is that there's very little that you could tell me that would change how I feel about you. And we've all heard some stuff. And and yet is part of the journey to be as merciful unto oneself as they are to others. To say, you know, there's not much that could scare me away from you. And yet I don't think I said that right. I No, I think I, think I completely understand being what you so said. Being so hard on oneself. Yeah. Being so hard on oneself. You know, I once, I once answered an ad for a woman that wanted a sugar daddy. And I went down to Rodeo Drive and I had... I dressed the nicest clothes I had. She had a French accent. She was very kind. I think she saw through me. And and as the date ended, she told me to take off the tag off my pants. It said 3430. <laughs> oh, I love you. I love you. Give me some uh give me some fears. the the fear of you know gee the uh the grown old alone you know i don't think that's going to happen i think my kids are going to be there and they're going to kiss me goodnight like they still do and and that can be loving except that paul the greatest fear would be is that 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 there's something wrong with me why can't i have what I think other people do. I think everybody has that, but the only difference is the thing that they want is different from person to person. The thing that they want that somebody else has is different from person to person. But everybody, I think, envies something in, in another person's life. So then the, then the fear 
morphs into I fear that I'll never be enough. Yeah. Uh, I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear I'm a clumsy lover. If you can run with a heart on, you're not a clumsy lover. Or though you did say you fell down, didn't you? No, no, but I ran so hard that once I caught her and went back to my car, uh, the first thing I had to do was go to a little mini mart and buy Bactine for the soles of my feet. <laughs> I can tell you that one of the big things I learned was that uh, when I first got uh, started to change is that uh, I... Uh, I had still bought crack for other people to use to facilitate sexual relations with them. And that at some point, my mentor said to me, he says, you know, uh, it's not that you're, you don't think you're hurting anybody. You, you've got to care more for her than she cares for herself right now. You can't do that anymore. And I said, but she wants it. She called. She said, come over. She, but she's in her she sickness. She lifted, you know, she does this and that. And he says, but this, we're at a whole new level of caring, you know. So I, I can't do those things. I'll see something I'd like to steal on the way home and I don't get to. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's do some loves. Give me something you love. Share the, share the love that you, you shared with me just before we started recording about your kids. Um, today, yeah. the big rain happened and, and fearful parents can be controlling parents. Then they can't control and they become angry parents. And today my kids, uh, Morgan put on his roller skates and Nikki, surely not wearing enough clothes, went out and they were going to walk the dogs and the rapids, we don't have enough gutters where we live, and so the water was deep and flowing. And Nicky went out in his sandals, and he was watching the sandal float down. And so instead of being upset and uptight, uh, instincts was, we let's put something on the sandal and see if it'll balance all the way like a surfer on a board. And I saw them having this little kid fun. And what I thought, Paul, at that moment was, you know, just because I'm scared or I'm upset about something or I feel like something's not fair, I can't take it out on them. You know, I can't. And, and that this is just this unbridled childhood nuttiness. Completely, you know, they're going to need some medicine before bed, some cough syrup, I'm sure, tonight. Except they can't stop talking about how much fun they had. And all I had to do was just stop worrying for a minute. You know, um, my son, Nick, uh, stabbed a teacher with a pencil and, and was tested as the smartest kid that they'd ever tested at that school. And, and it was by that, that you discovered he needed to be in a different peer group. You know, he, he, he fights with teachers about mathematic calculations They're, they're, they've got a dad who's not my dad, which is a big deal. But as far as a love goes, little Morgan, he's a tiny guy, he sings. 
and he sings and he rocks and he does and when he sings with me paul he does harmonies and we'll be singing some song and he starts to do it and then he gives me the fist bump and you know what for me it's it's like it's like god has forgiven every sin that i've done those paul those are moments for me specifically for me because of what i had with my dad my dad came to my little league baseball games and got kicked out because he was drunk and i was so afraid that i didn't swing the bat ever i was that kid so i was mocked and a joke to the other kids but i played second base with my glasses on with the little stars up in the corner and my friend gary was the catcher and he could throw like a beast and i can't tell you how many guys i tagged out trying to steal second base so much so that i was the only kid ever to make the all-star team with a 0-0-0 batting average and that's true wow because because you see whatever dynamic was between me and my dad i was afraid to swing and don't drop the ball so now we bought some property in arizona and i bought a pitching machine and my favorite thing to do is to swing the bat oh that's fantastic it is it's cool and um so my son singing my son being smart those moments those moments for me paul the significance of fatherhood in my life that's that's the great love and and you know the moments where you, where everything you've been through and how you worked it out with the wife and the revelation about this and that and going with the guy to meet the kid it all amounts to being able to sit with somebody and say i know how you feel so that our lives weren't wasted so that there was a purpose and a shape to our lives before we could even recognize it you know and i said what you know i don't know god's plan and they said it's better that way you'd only fuck it up <laughs> well peter thank you so much for coming and uh just uh being you i love you buddy well it it went much better than than several of my visions <laughs> i you know i was i was gonna have to find a new support group to go to because i couldn't see paul anymore <laughs> because you're because you're very smart keep going you're trying to get in my pants and keep going and you're highly intelligent mm -hmm. and that that i'm a little intimidated by you tops coming off and uh and yet you're so good at what you do there goes one slipper is that that you carried me through this like a true professional there goes the other slipper bingo and and here's some medication to go with that feeling <laughs> what does that mean uh, it's it's uh you know just that you'd catch something from me oh okay <laughs> No, don't leave. Please, promise you'll edit that. Oh, and I'm supposed to go tap, tap, tap for my friend Paul. I have a friend in 
Florida, mm-hmm. just struggling with his life. And and I mentioned you in this show, and he was so impressed that I knew you. Oh, he's a listener. Absolutely. And his name is? Eric. Eric, sending some love your way, buddy. Hang in there. Okay. Thanks, Pete. Many, many thanks to, to Pete. And um, I, he has, I don't think anybody has amused me with stories in my support group like uh, like Peter. Before we uh, take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys um, that there's some uh, different ways to uh, support the show if you feel so inclined. Uh, you can support us financially by going to um, our website, mentalpod.com, and making a one-time PayPal donation or uh, a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. And uh, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to the show. It helps uh, keep it going. Um, there's a lot of things that uh, we'd like to, to do with the show to expand it, but we just don't have the budget to do it. I would love to be able to hire people to um, to do some stuff. I'd love to be able to hire a web uh, uh, person. Um, I got a web guy that that does it for free, but he's just been dragging his feet, um, redesigning the, the site because he's, he's swamped. He's got a, he's got a busy life. Um, but anyway, I, I, we could use, we could use, uh, more donations. So just putting that out there. Um, but if you don't, uh, certainly don't feel uh, guilty because I know there's a lot of people out there, uh, struggling financially. How's that for backpedaling? Um, you can also support us financially if you're going to buy something at Amazon. Enter through the search portal on our homepage, and um, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels, and it doesn't cost you anything. And that's not to be confused with the search box uh, on, for our website itself. And that's a great tool if you want a particular topic. Um, just type in bipolar or whatever you're looking for, anxiety, and then episodes that have that and then the description will, will come up or blog posts written by, by people. Um, I think that's it. Oh, 12 years sober, uh, Tuesday. Amazing. Amazing. I, I, I can't imagine what my life would look like if I was still, uh, drinking and drugging. I, I I can't imagine. I'm pretty sure I I would have uh, gotten a DUI and uh, had my license taken away. I kind of like that little exhale. That was very dramatic. Let's get to some surveys. This is uh, from the struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself hospital paper pusher. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, My girlfriend's mood dictates mine. If she's happy, I'm happy. If she's not, I will work so hard to make her happy. Uh, She told me once that she doesn't feel like she can be sad or frustrated because I want to fix her mood. That is a really, really common thing. And I think the the person who is codependent um, thinks that that's love, you know, to try to make someone happier, but really the most loving thing you can do is to just listen to that person and uh, not try to fix them. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Marie about her depression. When depressed, it feels as though my body is a wire hanger and someone put a heavy wool blazer onto me and tried to hang me up. 
about her anxiety. If someone else were to tell me these things, I would think that they were a deranged asshole. But if the neurotic voice inside my head says it, it's the voice of reason. About her OCD, I distract myself to not worry, but then worry because I'm not getting done what I should. And so I distract myself again to deal with a new worry. Oh, this, the, the cycle, the cycle of dysfunction. It's perfect in its sickness. This is from the uh, I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Mary. And uh, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? That I was a warm, caring person who made the world a better place for those who knew her. How does writing that make you feel? Like I should do more to let people know that I am warm and caring. That's fantastic. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would watch scenes from my parents' childhood so I could understand them better. Ditto for my husband. Maybe a few scenes from my own childhood. That is far and away the uh, most common answer that people uh, put for that one. And, And I would probably do that one as well. But I think I'd also throw some music ones in there. I would I would want to go see uh, Django Reinhardt play guitar in a cafe in the in the forties with Stefan Grappelli, um, and watch the Beatles record uh, Revolver. Oh my God, would I love that? Uh, I'm I'm supposed to feel eager to get a job after selling my business, but I feel like I don't want to work right now, maybe ever. That makes me feel like I'm lazy and I feel guilty about not working, even though I have income from another source. I'm supposed to feel like I'm at the peak of my career and life at at my age, 50, but I feel kind of lost. I didn't choose a good career, I've had two, and don't know what to do next. These are both basically the same issue. I feel like I should feel challenged by my situation and determined to find the next great career, but I want to stay home and be reclusive. I imagine my friends and family asking each other what the hell I'm doing and judging me negatively. How does it make you feel to write that out? Clarifying. Do you think you're abnormal? Maybe maybe not abnormal, but it feels morally wrong, and I think it may be uncommon. I think it's super common, and I don't think it's morally wrong. Um, I think you're feeling what you're feeling and I relate very deeply. So, um, would knowing other people feel the same way and make you feel better? Uh, it would help some. Well, I can tell you, um, even though I've found the next phase of, of what my, um, career is, there are so many things that I want to accomplish, but, um, I just, I feel like I'm moving through molasses uh, a lot of times and, and I just, I've just kind of come to accept that for now, this is as good as my depression is going to get, that I can get a minimum of stuff done. But beyond that, I'm just not really thriving. And, uh, and I hate that. I hate that I'm not fighting harder to feel more vital and vigorous. Back-to-back V-words, Paul. Look at you. This is I Shouldn't Feel This Way, filled out by a guy who calls himself Arlo. And um, what would you like people to say at your funeral? That I was funny and kind to everyone, but that I was also weird and unable to make what I want to happen beyond a very minor, minor level. I'd like them to be honest and maybe even see me as a cautionary tale. How does writing that make you feel? Nervous. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I'd rewatch my childhood. Clarification on certain events would help me understand why I think and feel the way I do. 
I'm supposed to feel okay about leaving my house to run errands, but I don't. I feel deeply anxious. I'm supposed to feel nervous but excited about asking someone out that I like, but I don't. I feel overwhelmed with fear and not just of rejection. I'm supposed to feel happy about helping my mother as she gets older, but I don't. I feel trapped. I'm supposed to feel safe about sharing my feelings with my friends, but I don't. I feel like I'll drive them away. How does writing that make you feel? Sad. Do you think you're abnormal? I know I'm not, but I can't shake the feeling that I am. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better, only marginally? Yeah, you know, um, it's it's weird the dichotomy between what we what we intellectually know is a lie and what we feel. Like we intellectually know, oh, I'm not a terrible person or I'm not the laziest person on earth, but it's, you feel like it, you feel like. Uh, This is an awful moment filled out by Megan A. Mess, and she writes, uh, I took my older, jobless, lives-at-home brother out to dinner for his birthday. He picked a pretty expensive restaurant that I couldn't really afford, but I accommodated him. During dinner, he opened up about his depression, and I was so excited. Our family likes to sweep things under the rug and never talk about them. I finally had someone in my family to relate to. I proceeded to tell him about my suspicions that I have PMDD and about my history of self-harm. He essentially told me I have problems because I'm a girl, and my depression isn't valid because I'm not medicated. And I hope he burped right after he said it. What a dick. Um, and speaking of dick, uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I still need to suck a dick. Why am I taking surveys? Um, she is bisexual in her twenties. Um, well, she was bisexual kind of gray too. Um, uh, in her twenties, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened. Um, she writes, uh, I don't, I just don't know. My body doesn't feel real, just numb. Um, she's never been physically abused, but she has been emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, it was just a very codependent relationship to the point where I believed I had borderline personality disorder. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Oh, definitely. But if I could take a pill to forget all of it, I would. Darkest thoughts. Lots of violence. Slitting throats. Incest. My psych describes it as a Game of Thrones dreams when I describe them to him as dreams. But in addition, they are real-life intrusive thoughts. Darkest secrets. That I have dreams of having sex with my mom and dad. Sometimes they kill or torture me, too. Vivid dreams I have about being raped and tortured by old men and gang-banged by whole families. But I do like to blame that on 120 milligrams of Cymbalta. Other than that, not many people know that I'm a, quote, recovered anorexic, but I tell people when I'm drunk. So, um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I haven't been with a woman yet, and that makes me sad. Other than that, I'm super turned on by that porn where old dudes on public transport start groping and rubbing all up on girls. 
also straight rape porn. I'm quite a physically attractive yet intimidating woman, and I do get a kick out of being sexually dominating, but I also love the idea of being dominated by some sick old man. If I had the energy to go out and find sexual partners, I'd be so kinky. But hey, I'm a depressed girl. I barely have the energy to lift my pinky. This doesn't make me ashamed. I am quite shameless. However, I still don't quite have a grasp on my sexuality because mental illness put development on hold in my teens. I wish I had more knowledge and experience. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I tell everyone I know that I struggle every day and do not act surprised if one day I'm not here. If they dare say they didn't see the signs, like the rest of the suicides I see, I will be mad down in hell where I'm melting for my sins. What, if anything, do you wish for happiness and fun on a daily basis? Have you shared these things with others? Somewhat. My dreams are one of the only things I keep to myself. This is because if you aren't liberal, they might be a bit uh, confronting. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I'm going to go eat dinner and I really don't care that much about sex. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Don't worry about the dreams and don't let people who tell them you tell them to think that they can solve all your problems and interpret them for you. Sometimes a dream is just a dream. Do not fret. Thank you for that. And I would uh, agree. Dreams are just dreams and thoughts are just thoughts. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by um, a trans male uh, who is 16 and um, calls himself Cat Lady. And he writes, I used to have this cat that was morbidly obese. She was super neurotic. If we didn't, If we didn't give her... All the food she wanted, she would rip open cereal boxes, get up on the counter and eat the bread out of the bread box, eat the house plants, etc. And then she'd throw them up throughout the house. Eventually, we just gave in. So she got really, really fat. Make no mistake, I love this cat. She was sweet and adorable, and all she ever wanted was love. Naturally, because she was so fat, we avoided taking her to the vet as much as we could. We all kind of knew she was going to die one day because of it of a heart attack or something, but it was kind of a catch-22, so we just let her be fat, and it was what she wanted. But when I was maybe 12, she got attacked by the neighbor's dogs on our front porch. It was horrifying, and the next day, my dad took her to the vet. He called me later that day and told me the vet said, although she would normally have disparaged us for our cat's weight, her incredible obesity actually saved her life because her fat absorbed all the bites and protected her organs. We thought that was fucking hilarious, of course, and my dad brought the cat home that night. We continued to be amused by how the very thing we thought made us terrible cat owners had actually saved her life. It's still kind of funny, even though she died the next day anyway. <laughs> I was going to cut that last part out, but you guys can handle a sad uh, pet. Nothing makes me more sad than... than uh, pets dying but I felt an obligation to read the whole thing um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Nia and about her anxiety she writes like my head is constantly constantly speculating if it should call 911 snapshot from her life having to watch videos of YouTube uh, on having to watch videos on YouTube of dogs meeting their owners so that I cry because crying is the only thing that will calm down my nervous system when my anxiety is really bad and I'm on the verge of having a panic attack. That actually sounds like a good coping skill. Um, and then she, any suggestions to make the podcast better? She writes, uh, I'd like to have a guest uh, 
that is living with generalized anxiety. Uh, the episode with Steve Agee is a good one um, about anxiety. This is the uh, same survey filled out by a um, girl who calls herself Turtlebutt. She is, uh, she's a teenager. And about her anxiety, she writes, During an attack, my mouth gets dry, my pulse slows to that of a corpse, and my blood feels cold. And sometimes I am convinced there is formaldehyde in my veins instead of blood, and sometimes I have to cut it out. Um, Snapshot from her life. As I type this, the sun is rising and I am laying next to my soundly sleeping boyfriend, equal parts massively pissed off and grateful that he doesn't struggle with insomnia and mental illness. Lucky bastard. This is a shame and secret survey. This is filled out by Layla, who is straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, I was molested by my adopted brother. I never told my parents, and he's currently in jail for abusing children. I blame myself daily for not saying anything so he could be put away sooner. That is not your shame. That is his shame. And you were a child as well. Um... She's been physically abused and she's been emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, I was engaged to someone who took everything from me. It began with this sweet honeymoon type love. And within three months, I didn't see my friends anymore. After six, I didn't leave our house except to go to school and work. He had PTSD from an ar- army tour, which I later learned was false. He only went to- on one training mission before getting injured during a practice run and being discharged. He was addicted to pain pills for a back injury, but was still miraculously able to drive cars, motorcycles, go snowboarding, skydiving, and cliff diving. I broke my ankle once, and if he got angry, he would take my crutches and hide them so I was unable to get around. He pushed me downstairs and was violent during sex, but if I truly thought he loved me, but I truly thought he loved me and was my only hope at ever being loved. After three... if you don't think that love addiction is dangerous, man, uh, after three years, when we were a month away from our wedding, we had a terrible fight. One of his hobbies was guns, and he grabbed an assault rifle and pointed it at me. I kept a pistol, a pistol in my purse that I was holding. Subconsciously, I think I always knew it would come to the moment we found ourselves in, and I pulled it out, firing two shots into the wall beside his head. My aim wasn't off, but I couldn't shoot. I couldn't shoot him. Uh, He dropped his weapon and backed away. I walked out the door and never looked back. I've never let anyone manipulate me like that since, and I'm quick to bail at any sign of possessiveness or anger. Um, Maybe I was judging you about being a love addict. Sorry about that. Uh, If you have been abused, are there any positive experiences with your abusers? I don't see or speak to either of them and consider my life better without them in it. Darkest thoughts. I think about suicide a lot, but I know people love me. I have a boyfriend. I have great parents. I have a handful of close friends. But all day, every day, I think how good it would feel to just end it all. Darkest secrets. Every couple of months, I buy an eight ball of cocaine and do it on one weekend. Sometimes I go out of town, but many times I just stay home and clean, cook, dance, play video games, walk around downtown and paint. But it's usually the most productive time I have, which is really sad. I'm coming up on five months since the last time I did it, and I'm quite tempted. But if I can make it through this month, maybe the next one won't be so hard, and the rest of them after that. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. 
cuckolding, and multiple men. My boyfriend is not into it at all. I'm dominant and get off on humiliation, which I understand isn't for everyone, so it's usually something I just do in my head. When, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to say to my neighbors that I think their dog is cute, but they play their music a little too loud at 3.45 a.m., but my social anxiety and general fear of pissing people off won't allow it. When, if anything, do you wish for? Happiness without limits, achievable dreams, and to be loved for who I am, not what I do. Have you shared these things with others? My mother thinks I'm a crazy hippie. My father thinks the same, only that I'm a lazy, crazy hippie, and my friends are pretty much on the same page as me. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I just took a warm shower. It's off my chest so I can get dressed and begin my day. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you find the secret to life, please tell Paul so he can podcast it to the rest of us. Besides that, every day at the beginning of the day, make a list of people who love you. If the first name isn't yourself, figure out why and get help to fix it. Oh, that is, I think you just, I think you just nailed it. I think you just answered your own uh, desire. Let's see. This is, did I read this one already? Oh, I'm all fucked up now. Oh, man. I mixed my piles up. No. No, I'm good. I think I'm good. Yes. I'm good. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Menudo about his depression. Work, home, work, home, work, paycheck, futility. That's a good one. About his ADD. Would, could you... Could you shut the fuck up so I can stare into middle space? I want a t-shirt with that. That is, that's actually more, uh, I relate that one more to depression than uh, than anything else. Uh, eating disorder, not otherwise specified. Never quite sure if it's my imagination that uh, that I'm completely normal and just melodramatic or if I actually need help. Snapshot from his life. I'm wrist deep in my parents' garbage can, hiding the containers left after I ate their food. This is filled out by um, a woman or girl who calls herself, uh, I'm running out of clever aliases, um, about living with an abuser. This would all be so much easier if I could just fucking hate you. Uh, Snapshot from her life. This isn't a single moment. It happens over and over again. I open up to someone about my abusive father and they say, why can't you just leave? How, how can you tell someone I love my abuser? He hurts me, but he loves me and I can't bear to hurt him back. I highly recommend going to a support group for dysfunctional families. There's a ton of them out there. And um, um, yeah, it's time to, it's time to uh, start taking care of yourself because if you can't set boundaries with your with your dad, you're not going to be able to uh, set them in relationships, and there's a really good chance every romantic relationship you have is going to be a disaster. You're just going to wind up playing this drama out over and over again with just a different cast of, of, of people. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by our friend Maury Amsterdam's Taint. Uh, he writes... Uh, Bear with me, this one's kind of weird, but it happened last night and is absolutely true. 
I broke my little toe yesterday. Or at least I think I did. I was so sad and angry with my wife for once again not showing me the least amount of affection or sympathy. I was really in pain. Still am. This has uh, been a problem for a while. If the cat hurt its paw, she'd drive to the vet at 4 a.m. But her husband, clearly in pain? Nothing. Sorry, long story for another time. Anyway, I'm lying in bed, 3 a.m., unable to sleep, sad and disappointed about my relationship in a fair amount of pain. It's been hot as hell up here in the Northwest, and the windows are open. Ceiling fan on high, my cold, unsympathetic wife snoring next to me. Suddenly, I let out a long, and I mean long, fart. As I do this, the breeze picks up, and the closet door slowly closes from the wind. I kid you not, it makes an almost identical long fart noise back to me from the creaking hinges. A kind of call and response moment. I burst out laughing and nearly woke up my wife. It was like my body let out a long, smelly moan of despair, and my house responded in kind, as if to say, There, there, buddy. I know how you feel. It's going to be okay. Well, at least it felt that way at that moment. That's right, Paul. I communicate with my house with my ass. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Thank you for that. I love a good, awful moment. This is a struggle in a sentence. Huh? Helicopters? Oh, L.A. The city of fugitives. This is um, struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Ed McGregor, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. About his PTSD, he writes, I guess your stepfather coming to shoot you with his shotgun and you behind your bed with your crossbow that you made in shop preparing to die at 17? Yeah. Yeah, I would uh, I would call that PTSD. Uh, or a PTSD moment. <laughs> that would be a dark thing to, to have on uh, a, a network. A TV network, and now this PTSD moment brought to you by brought to you by stepfathers. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Beauty and the Beast. She's twenty, straight, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, she doesn't uh, say any more. Um, She's been emotionally abused and doesn't say anything more about that. Any positive experiences with your abusers? A little. The emotional abuse comes from my father. I have no love towards him, so I don't think it complicates anything. The sexual abuse comes from my dad's best friend, who he refuses to stop bringing home, even though he knows I'm uncomfortable. I think uncomfortable might be a mild term. Um, I would say traumatized. I mean, I'm not inside your skin, but I would be, you know, somewhere between numb uh, and uh, traumatized. Um, darkest thoughts. Lesbian rape, tying up another girl and sodomizing her after she's blacked out drunk. I think about that one a lot. Having sex with a middle school, a middle school aged boy. I dream about this at night, but I think it's disgusting. I hate it. I couldn't imagine ruining a kid like that. Having sex with a married man and leaving proof for his wife and kids to find so I can humiliate him. Killing my dad. I would strangle him or stab him to make it personal, then finish it off with a gun to make sure the job gets done. 
Darkest secrets. I once tried to look at my best friend's little sister's privates. She wouldn't allow me to. I wasn't trying to to look to be abusive. I was very interested in the anatomy. A few years later, I looked at my baby sister's privates. Again, I was curious in the anatomy. I thought there was something different about my own vagina. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Definitely the lesbian sex thing. I fantasize about tying up another girl after she's drugged and having sex with her. It's weird because besides that fantasy, I've never been interested in another girl. I don't consider myself a lesbian at all. I don't know why I have that fantasy. Another fantasy is me being the one tied up and blindfolded, being beaten, and a guy having sex with me. It feels really strange typing all this out. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would love to tell my dad my piece. Tell him that I want no part in his disgusting life. I can't tell him that right now because he financially supports me. Man, my heart goes out to people that are financially dependent on abusive people. Oh, man. I wish I, I, wish I had some type of advice um, for that, but I really, I don't. I'm a blowhard about everything else, but... Um, what if anything do you wish for I wish I could redo my life with everything I know now have you shared these things with others no hell no I sound like a creep no matter how I explained anything I would still sound like a creep I don't think you sound like a creep you know when when um, you know when we experience uh, abnormal things as kids uh you know, our brain reacts in in a certain way. And uh, and I think just human beings in general, I think people who haven't even experienced trauma, I think people that have healthy childhoods, I think the brain is just, uh, your brain is just a freak show, man. It's a, a freak show with, uh, you know, it's a freak show that can talk us into taking the steering wheel uh, that can be so convincing. To, to let us uh, turn the steering wheel over to it. But um, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel a whole lot better. I feel like I'm being honest with myself. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Loop Lumbricus uh, Terrestris. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Anyway, Horsecock. I had to look twice to make sure I was reading it correctly. Actually, I had to read it four or five times just to be certain my perverted, situationally dyslexic mind wasn't trying to twist the word cook or something like that. But it was right there, right on top of the iPad screen, the title of an open tab in Safari. Next to it were two other open tabs labeled Cock of Horse and Horse Fuck. In the middle of a Christmas Eve gift unwrapping, surrounded by my immediate family, bestiality was the last thing I was thinking about. I continued to fumble around with the iPad for a few minutes, trying to log into my Facebook account so I could share a few pictures with the family, but with no success. But it gave me a convenient excuse not to pass around among my family a device loaded with a parade of turgid horse dongs. I turned off the iPad, returned it to my father, apparently it was his, and did my best to compartmentalize this experience while continuing with the festivities of the evening, opening the rest of the gifts, and then going to an 11 p.m. Lutheran church service. 
Oh, you can't make this shit up. At first, I, when I read that, I was confused because I thought that that was a gift that he was opening. But I think it was just his, da- his dad's iPad was laying around while uh, people were opening gifts. And he decided he wanted to try to... Uh, oh, shut up, Paul. Just shut your fucking hole. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Sammy G. He is straight in his 40s, raised in a stable and safe environment. He's never been sexually abused. He's been emotionally abused. He writes, I was bullied verbally since I was six. I'm 41 and the scars it has left cannot be healed. In my final year of high school, people started calling me GT. Later, I found out it meant genetic throwback. And my so-called close group of friends who I'd shared high school with for six years started it. This was basically, this has basically defined my life and how I feel about myself. I have an amazing girlfriend, but the shitty thoughts still linger about me being a substandard human. Darkest thoughts. I'd love a terminal disease like cancer because I'm too much of a coward to kill myself. Darkest secrets. I need a disease so others will care for me. I'm having issues now, so maybe I have manifested this. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want a hot tranny's dick in my arse. Uh, By the way, um, for those of you that don't know, tranny is a derogatory term. Um, uh, trans, uh, Trans woman would be what you would um, call a, a um, somebody who was born into a uh, male body but identifies as, as female. What, if anything, do you wish for? Death! Exclamation point. That might be the first one, uh, the first excited uh, wish for death that we've had. Have you shared these feelings with others? No, because no one could understand me. Oh, I think you would be really really surprised how many people i mean you listen to this podcast every other survey somebody is you know dreaming of the bus veering you know off the sidewalk right into them so they don't have to uh i think that's i think that's just part of being human man life is hard life is confusing life's scary but it's also beautiful and and uh yeah, that's it. Beautiful. <laughs> How do you feel after writing these things down? Shit house! Exclamation point. <laughs> I like you, Sammy G. I like you, and I too um, find uh, trans women that uh, still have the penis uh, to be very uh, erotic. The first time I stumbled onto one, I think it was a. Uh, it was. Um, the cover of a um, DVD, an adult DVD, and um, I was like, oh man, that is hot. And then, of course, I went immediately to a place of shame. I'm gay. What, how did I not know I was gay? Um, this, and by the way, being attracted to a, a trans woman does not, uh, you know, that doesn't mean you're gay. And even if you were gay, gives a shit. This is an awful moment from a woman who calls herself Aileen from Planet Claire. Oh, lover of the B-52s. I played the shit out of a B-52 album when I was uh, in college. And my favorite song, Quiche Lorraine. Oh my God, that is a fantastic song. 
this I don't consider an awful moment and I wanted to read it because I just had some advice. And uh, she writes, talking to my sponsor in a 12-step program after remembering the moment at age five when I understood that my father only kept me alive to sell into pornography and sex work. Uh, and having my sponsor told me that, tell me that uh, if her friend had horrible experiences, uh, I would never believe and wasn't angry at God, then I needed more faith. I, I, there, I think there's typos in there somewhere. But basically, this sponsor was telling her uh, that she needs more faith. And, uh, and I just want to say uh, that, is, that is a terrible advice and sever any advice getting from from that person because they clearly don't understand uh trauma because you can't just go from you know i think somebody who if they were to to, uh i think the appropriate way for somebody to react would be oh my god that's fucking horrible can i give you a hug and if they're comfortable giving you a hug hug them hold them say that is that is so terrible. You did not deserve that. And ask, are they, are, have you gone to a professional to talk about this? Because this is really heavy. And, and do not try to take this, this on your own. But to say that you just need faith, fuck you fuck you and I'm a believer in uh, 12 step stuff but you know uh, there that that is not a reflection on uh, 12 step thing that's that is it's just like somebody who's uh, you know a homophobe uh, thumping the bible Th- that is not a uh, representation of um, who not a representation of uh, the teachings of uh, Jesus Christ This is a happy moment filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Evelina. And she writes, So I'm standing in Costco buying the best jacket ever, and there are tears streaming down my face. This jacket fits like a fucking dream, which is rare. I've gained 35 pounds in the last year. Nothing ever fits this well. Honestly, I barely got out of bed this morning. Correction, this afternoon. Makes two of us. Got up at 1, went to bed at 6. That's right. My wife got up to work out, and I was playing Civilization Five. Yeah. Damn you, Jason Piccolo, for posting on Facebook a graphic of Civilization Five. I went and bought it, and uh, you've completely screwed up my sleep schedule. Anyway, getting back to the survey. Uh, when I finally woke up, uh, I went to the bathroom, and when I came back, I looked at my bed and so desperately wanted to crawl back in, protect myself from the big bad world, from life. But after an hour under the covers, I decided going to Costco is small and doable. I had to return something. It's a simple transaction, and I'm experiencing one of those days where being around strangers feels better than being alone. The cashier reluctantly asks me how I am, and I smile brightly through my raccoon eyes from my mascara seeping down my cheeks. Absolutely wonderful. Thanks. I chirp back. I pay for my stuff and leave. Tears continue streaming down my face as I walk out. 
Moments before the checkout, a voice came into my head. It talks to me, telling me things that aren't bad. Telling me that things aren't that bad. You can do this. You're fine and everything is okay. And you don't have to be scared anymore. You're fine. You won't feel this bad forever. You're a wonderful, beautiful person and you are very much loved. I know how hard it's been for you. I know you've been doing your best to stay alive, to wake up every morning, even though it hurts so much, and push through the pain and fear. I know you're scared. I know it hurts. Darling, you are never alone. And it calls me sweetheart. And it repeats my pet name that only my boyfriend calls me. And it's literally slicing away at every ounce of self-hate I've been feeling lately, turning it into dust. Through all my self-work, therapy, support groups, I've somehow developed a strong inner voice of compassion and self-love that cushions my fall every time I start to revert back into the dark hole of depression. I get into my car and take another 20 minutes to sit and absorb these loving and compassionate thoughts. When I finally get home, I feel exhausted. It's a sense of deep relief and relaxation. I take a short nap and just enjoy my day. I finally have the motivation to do things. It's small things, sewing up a tank top, deleting some of the junk on my computer. But compared to even a day ago, it's like a huge boulder got moved out of my way. I'm not better yet. I have a ton of work ahead of me. But I've observed that I have so many acquired skills and healthy coping methods to deal with the dark clouds that there are no dead ends in my life anymore. And that makes all the difference. I was going to read a couple more, but I think that is one to end on. I th- that's one you drop. You drop the mic after you read that. That is a mic dropper. Thank you, Evelina. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs> Paul said condescendingly. <laughs> um, and uh, you know what I always say: if you're out there and you're stuck. Come on. Give it a shot. Pick up that phone. You know, Google Lofi therapy. Google support group and an issue that you're dealing with. It's not hard. It seems hard. It seems insurmountable, but it's not. Listen, this is this is coming from a guy who sometimes will sleep until noon and then take a nap at three. I'm I'm not, you know, the model of uh, getting shit done. And if I can do it, you can do it. And um, no matter where you are right now, no matter how stuck you feel, no matter how dark the thoughts are in your head, no matter how much wreckage you've caused, you are not alone. You are absolutely not alone. And thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.